Thank you, and once again, good morning to students and teachers of the Word of God. You are listening to the 26th broadcast on the Theological Seminar of the Air, where each week we present the great Bible doctrines clearly enunciated in the Bible itself, and give to the listener what the Bible itself has to say about these doctrines. As we've mentioned before, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine before it's profitable before anything. It is true the Scriptures are profitable for reproof, correction, instruction, righteousness, but the first and primary reason given for the Scripture, given by the Scriptures themselves, 2 Timothy 3.16, is that all Scriptures give the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine. Now, since you're living in the Laodicean church period before the second advent of Jesus Christ, the period of the lukewarm apostate church, you're living in that uh, period of church history which is peculiarly marked by the apostasy of the body of Christ. It is true these Schofield notes consign apostasy only to the unsaved, but unfortunately the Schofield subject uh, index reference that gives the uh, summary of the subject summarizes apostasy under 2 Timothy chapter 4. Any careful reader of 2 Timothy chapter 4 will immediately see that the references are to the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, the saved people. So in this final apostate church before the second advent of Jesus Christ, it is paramount for the born-again child of God who intends to do business for God and love God and obey God and believe God to understand what is sound doctrine and what is not. I'll only quote one example before we take up our lesson today on the arguments against the sinlessness of Christ. And one example I will give will be the passage in uh, the Bible that says, All Scriptures give the inspiration of God, 2 Timothy 3.16. Now, the apostate church has privately interpreted this passage to mean that only the original manuscripts were given the inspiration of God. This is what they call a non-biblical heresy and it is the product of the pagan imagination. When the Bible says all Scripture is given the inspiration of God, the word Scripture was defined in the verse immediately preceding it, 2 Timothy 3.15. And when you ever hear this heresy taught that only the original manuscripts are verbally inspired, you're dealing with a non-biblical pagan theology that comes from the depraved imagination of fallen man. There is nothing in the Bible that says the original manuscripts were God-breathed. Not a word. The statement in 2 Timothy 3.16 is all Scripture is given inspiration of God, and the Scripture referred to in the verse above, verse 15, in the context, is not the original manuscripts. Now, this shows you to the extent of the apostasy in America today among the born-again, soul-winning, godly, dedicated, recognized, fundamental, premillennial, etc. The places where they've gone to school have taught them that 2 Timothy 3.16 can only refer to the original manuscripts. And this was only done by denying the context in which the statement was made and pretending the word Scripture referred to the originals, which, of course, it does not in John 10 or Acts 8, or 2 Timothy, or any place in the New Testament. Now, I only mention this in passing to show you the deepening shadows of apostasy as they creep across the land, where they affect, first of all, the Bible-believing Christians in the body of Christ as they become apostates themselves by accepting the traditions of man and the philosophy of the world instead of what the Bible says. For that reason, in these series of broadcast, we've gone to the utmost uh, care and trouble to give you hundreds of references to deal with every subject we've covered. This is the 26th broadcast of the Theological Seminar of the Air in which we've been discussing the sinlessness of Christ. And before this, in our 
bracket of Christology, we have discussed the prophecies about the life of Christ, the virgin birth of Christ, the deity of Christ, the arguments against the deity of Christ, the relationship of the Son to the Father, the humanity of Christ, now the sinlessness of Christ. And if you've been taking notes as you come through, you notice we have given you ream upon ream of scriptures in the context in which they appear, where they deal with the scriptures that are appropriate to their subject. Now, I say that because anybody who fools with the Bible at all knows you can quote scripture to prove anything. However, you cannot leave a verse in the context in which it appears, or add to it, or subtract to it, and make it teach the truth. That is, if you leave a verse in the context in which it appears, and take nothing from it, and add nothing to it, it will not teach anything you want it to teach. It'll say, what's so? The only way you can quote Scripture to prove anything is either take a verse out of the context, or add something to it that's not in it, or take away something from it that's in it. In this respect, anybody really can make the Scriptures teach anything. If you want the Scriptures to teach anything, simply go to the Greek and change the Scriptures. Then you make them line up with what you believe. But you cannot make the Scriptures teach anything but the truth where you leave them as they stand in the context in which they appear. With this in mind, we now approach our subject today, the arguments against the Savior's sinlessness. Our previous broadcast running scores of references showing that he was sinless, not only according to his own testimony, but the testimony of his enemies. Now, the arguments against the Savior's sinlessness come in these brackets. First of all, some deny that sinlessness is possible. The fact that sinlessness is contrary to reason avails little in view of the stated facts of Scripture. Some people say, well, I can't live a sinless life. Oh, that may be true. But then again, you're not the second member of the Godhead. Somebody said, well, I can't live above sin. I have trouble with sin every day. I'll grant you that. Uh, the Lord gives every thoroughbred dog just enough pleas to remind him he's still a dog. And the Lord leaves in the life of the best of us just enough sins to remind us that we're still sinners. Also enough just in the life of the best of us to remind us that we have to fight daily against sin, and also enough sin in our lives to humble us and make us realize our utter dependence upon God, and above all, just enough sin to remind us that if it weren't for the grace of God, we'd go to hell. And whenever you find a Christian that's always worrying about losing a salvation, you're always dealing with a Christian who thinks he's sinless or has refused to confess his sins. Now, the fact that you and I are not sinless and cannot attain the sinless perfection in this life is no argument against Christ's sinlessness. After all, you had a human father, and he didn't. After all, his body hadn't begun to decompose after three days, and yours will. The second argument against the Savior's sinlessness is some think that because of the fact that he was tempted, he must have been susceptible to sin. But temptation in itself is not sin. It is yielding to temptation that is sin. Jesus was tempted by Satan in Matthew 4 and Luke 4. He was tempted by the world and circumstances of sin, but he did not yield. Now, along this line, it is very important to resurrect for a while the ancient medieval scholastic uh, study of the doctrine of peccability, which is the doctrine of uh, the origin of sin. Where does sin come from, or where does it begin in the actions of the man who sins? Now, obviously, it begins someplace before the man acts overtly. By that I mean this. 
he that hateth his brother in his heart is a murderer. You see, the act doesn't have to be committed. One more example. He that looketh after a woman the lust after in his heart hath already committed adultery with her long before the overt act is committed. Therefore, it's obvious to the uh, plainest and obvious to the most crude type of exegesis that sin begins before it appears. Christ said, Out of the heart of man proceedeth evil thoughts, fornication, adulteries, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, foolishness, pride. All these things come from within a man and defile the man. The question is, where does it start within the man? Well, among the ancient systematic theologians and dogmatic theologians, the common order was taught that, first of all, we have what we call presentation. That is, the person is confronted with the particular thing about which they may or may not choose to sin. This is called presentation. The second stage is called illumination. That is, there is knowledge given about the object to be looked at or presented. A perfect example is found in Genesis chapter 2, the classic example, I mean Genesis 3. The classic example, as a matter of fact, for Genesis 3, Eve is presented with the object of temptation, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It is plain she has some illumination about it, because the Bible said when she saw the tree was good for food and pleasant to the eyes and desired to make one wise, she had illumination. She had been told not to eat it, which is apparent by the fact that when she talks to the devil, she said, God hath said and mentioned the fact that God told him not to eat it. So we have presentation and illumination. Now, there is no sin in presentation. Obviously, you can't say that you sin every time you look at something that isn't right. America being what it is today, a holocaust of X-rated pornographic nude slot, there's no chance at all you can get through 20 minutes of a day without sinning somewhere by the objects presented. There are objects being presented in America on billboards on the highway, that couldn't have gotten in the United States in a newspaper 40 years ago on the theater column. So the presentation is not sin. Like John Wesley said, you're not responsible for the birds that fly over your head, but you're responsible if they make a nest in your hair. Illumination is not sin. Jesus Christ had illumination. It was presented with the objects. He was shown all the kingdom of this world in a moment of time. That's presentation. He had illumination. He knew what he had to do to get those kingdoms and was offered an offer and had knowledge about the offer. Plainly, if illumination were sin, Jesus Christ was a sinner. Therefore, in the first two steps, sin has not yet entered the picture. In the matter of presentation and illumination, the order of speculability, that is the order of sin, the presentation of the object and illumination concerning the object does not constitute what the Bible calls sin, although the Bible says all unrighteousness is sin which cuts the line a great deal further than uh, Playboy and Hefner and the existentialists and uh, some of the atheists and agnostics in America would have you think. Now, the trouble comes in the third step. There is presentation. There is then illumination. And then there follows what they call debate. Now, where the sinner begins to debate in his mind whether he or not he will take a course of action, after he has had illumination in regard to the consequence of that action, sin has begun its work. And lust brings forth sin, and sin brings forth death before it is finished, and the wage of sin is death. It is not a sin to be presented with the object or have illumination about the object, but listen, 
when you begin to debate and cast forward back and forth in your mind as to whether or not you'll do it, after you've had illumination on what the thing is, sin has already started. And this brings us to the point where as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he, and a murderer is a murderer long before he commits the act. As a matter of fact, he is a murderer before he decides to do the act. He is a murderer when after knowing that it's wrong and having light on the consequences, begins to debate in his mind as to whether or not he will take the course of action which he knows to be wrong. And when that thing starts, sin has started, and it will bring forth death. Now, some argue regarding the temptation in Matthew chapter 4, verse 1 to 11, that if Jesus were perfect, the temptation would be unreal. How can a perfect person be tempted? Well, that's very simple. Adam and Eve were created perfect without original sin, and they were perfect, but they were tempted, and they yielded, proving that temptation is real even to a perfect person. Uh, it's interesting to note that Adam failed his test in the garden, and Jesus passed his test in the garden. Adam failed by doing what God told him not to do in hiding, and Jesus succeeded in doing what God told him to do and coming out in public. And hence, by one man sin entered the world, and by another man life entered, and grace abounding to all who believe. Some say, how could evil enter, where there is neither bias toward evil or weakness toward sin? But entered into the devil. Adam and Eve sinned, for they desired to become as gods, with the idea of maturity and development. That is, their motive was good, as most motives for sin are good. Eve saw something that was pleasant and good and make you wise. It was entirely a positive deal. That is, your alibi for sinning is always good. Sinners are always think of some good benefit that can come from wrongdoing. And with them, the end justifies the means. We call this hedonism, H-E-D-O-N-I-S-M. You'll find it uh, propounded by the leading pornographic girly magazines in America, and it is the standard teaching of the existential philosophers that have taught every presidential candidate that's been in the White House who had a college education. People ooh and on talk about Nixon this and Nixon that. Why did he do such a thing? The answer is he was trained to do it like all the rest of them were trained to do it. There hasn't been one president in the White House since the time of uh, Abraham Lincoln who went to college that wasn't taught situation ethics, but the end justified the means, and it all depends upon how you look at it. So don't be surprised if one of them tries it out. Unfortunately, he got caught. The rest of them were not caught. It's interesting to note in the news items, our recent commander-in-chief of the armed forces, one of the first acts he did uh, upon becoming uh, elected as the United States president was go down to a Baptist church and take the Justice Department with him as head of the armed forces and put pressure on the local church to adopt the decision in line with his vote. A very interesting operation, if you know anything about Baptist churches. And if you studied Roger Williams' separation of church and state, and if you study John Bunyan being thrown in jails for 12 years for not going along with the state, imagine a man in such a circumstance saying, well, I was merely appearing as a member. When he was commander-in-chief of the armed force of the United States and had the backing of the Justice Department on a church decision, now, ain't that a flip? You say, what are you saying? I'm saying there isn't a man who ever sinned against God that didn't alibi it and justify himself before he did it. Adam said, when God called him, the woman thou gavest to be with me, 
cheated give me and blame it on the woman. And if that weren't enough, the woman blame it on the serpent. And like an old-time preacher said, if the serpent had it by to blame it upon, he'd blame it on them. The temptation was real. They sinned. Jesus was so constituted he could have sinned if he desired, for he was a perfect man. And he was not a God-man or mixture. He was God and man. Therefore, his victory was absolute and complete, for he did not once yield to sin, although he was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. A man said to me one time, I don't understand that verse. I said, what do you mean? He said he was tempted in all points like as we are. He said he didn't have a wife and family. So what do you know about the temptations of a married man with a nagging wife? Or what do you know about raising children? Well, that shows a very superficial way of approaching the Bible. After all, the three main temptations are given three times in the Bible, and at all points is bracketed in these three classifications which cover every type of temptation. Now, the three main temptations that cover every kind of temptation that you've ever come up against or ever will come up against are found in three places. You might mark them down. The first of these is Matthew chapter 4, the second is Genesis chapter 3, and the third is 1 John 2.16. In these passages are found the basic three temptations that cover every temptation any man will ever be tempted with in this life or in the tribulation or millennium to come. The three basic temptations are, first of all, do it yourself. Turn these rocks into bread. That's the lust of the flesh. Number two, let God do it for you. Jump down off the temple and take a chance. The pride of life. Or, as he said, to make one wise. And finally, let the devil do something for you. Bow down and worship him. Or, as John says, the lust of the eyes. And as Eve said, pleasant to the eye. Now, every temptation you'll ever run into will be one of those three basic groups. They're found in 1 John 2.16 as the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life. They're found again in Genesis 3 as good for food, pleasant to the eye, and desire to make one wise. And they're found again in Matthew and Luke as turn these rocks into bread, bow down and worship me, and jump off the temple and trust God to hold you up. Now, if Jesus Christ were sinful, he had to die on Calvary for his own sin. And we are yet in our sins. If Jesus were sinful, he didn't die for your sin, he died for his own. If Jesus were sinful, then he was neither the Son of God nor the Son of Man, the Savior. He was a liar. He was not professed, he did not, he was not what he professed to be. If Jesus were sinful, it would be impossible for him to be a sacrifice on Calvary. God would not accept an imperfect sacrifice as a payment for sin. The law requires thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment, and no man ever kept it. And if Jesus Christ didn't kept it, the Lord would not accept his sacrifice in place of yours. Yours would be just as good as his, relatively speaking. If Jesus Christ were a sinner, then the church is established on sinking sand, soon to be destroyed. You have no hope of eternal security in Jesus Christ if Jesus Christ were a sinner, if he was just a sinner like Mao Tung or Lao Tse or Muhammad or Buddha or Confucius or Mary Baker Eddy or Madeleine Murray O'Hare or uh, Mother Shipton or Nostradamus or Edgar Casey or Khalil Gibran, he's not going to get you to heaven. 
Those people aren't members of the Godhead. They had no claim on eternity. They couldn't get out of the grave after three days. They couldn't come get up out of the grave after they'd been down there an hour. One of those dear souls had a telephone put down in the tombstone claiming that since death was an illusion, it was all in your mind, you weren't really dead, that she'd phone back up after she died. But it was rather significant, don't you think, that she had the telephone placed in her tomb? Rather ludicrous if she didn't really die. Why put it in the tomb? Why not put it over your kitchen sink? To deny the sinlessness of Jesus Christ is to rob men of a Savior and salvation. And we can praise God. The Bible says he was sinless, and today we have salvation. And we have a Savior who is tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. A sinless Savior. Now, there's a twofold manifestation of Christ's sinlessness. First of all, we may say negatively that he was sinless in the sense that he never committed an act of sin in thinking or speaking a falsehood. That's negatively. There's no evidence he ever committed an act of sin. There's no evidence that he ever thought of something that was wrong or that he spoke a falsehood. Now, I realize the liberal will not buy that. He thinks the Bible is filled with mistakes and that either Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are liars or that Christ was a liar or they were all liars and the lame alibi was they were accommodating their language to the people of their day and time or the lame alibi is they didn't understand the inductive scientific method in the limited educational cultural sphere in which they blah, 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 blah. I mean, the hypocrite who's trying to pass off a Christian will be the first one who will be liberal and gracious and joyous in giving everybody the benefit of a doubt and trying to smooth it over so his hellishness does not appear. Now, you want to remember that. That is the first man who'll get up there and try to soothe the thing over and try to make ends meet when he doesn't believe it is the man who's trying to cover up his own corruption so you can't see where he's standing. So when you have people throwing kisses at the King James Bible for its Elizabethan English and its beautiful prose and poetic rhythmical cadences, you're dealing with people who put it on the shelf and set their own selves up as superior to the Word of God. And we hear people talking about the great master and the lowly Galilean, the great teacher, and the great ethical principles for which he stood. You're dealing with an unsaved, hell-bound sinner who's trying to make you think that he feels the same way about your Savior that you do when he doesn't. And let me tell you something. You start going the line in there, you'll find the fur hitting the fan. Now, positively, Christ's sinlessness was manifested by the fact that he was always doing the things that were pleasing God in thought, in word, and deed. Holiness is twofold. It's a hatred of iniquity, which is negative, and it is a love of righteousness, which is positive. And along these two lines, his hatred of iniquity and his love of righteousness, the Lord Jesus Christ was perfectly balanced, and he fulfilled every aspect of perfect sinlessness. If you doubt his love of righteousness, remember when the young man said, All these commandments I have kept from my youth up, the Bible said Jesus looking upon him loved him. If you doubt for a minute he hated iniquity, read Matthew 23. If you doubt for a minute the Lord Jesus Christ couldn't hate with a vehement, intense hatred that would outpass any hatred you've known on this earth, read Matthew 23. Don't tell me you can love righteousness and iniquity. The great example, the great teacher which some of you follow, hated iniquity and hated the man who committed it 
And Pliny told that man he was a serpent and a generation of vipers and a blind guide and a hypocrite. Don't you give us all this stuff about Christ hating sin and loving the sinner and all this stuff and forget to tell your people that while loving the sinner, he call him anything but white. Christ said, Woe to you, Pharisees, scribes, and hypocrites, you fools and blind, that outwardly appear righteous unto men, but inside are full of dead men, bones, and all hypocrisy. You that cleanse the outside of the platter and cup, why don't you clean that within also? You serpents, you generation of vipers, how can you escape the damnation of hell? You fools and blind, that devour widows out of them for a pretense to make a long prayer, the same shall receive greater damnation. You fools and blind, that compass land and see to make one proselyte, and when you get him converted, you make him twofold more of a child of hell in yourself. You of your father, the devil and lust of your father, you will do is a liar from the beginning. And which of you convince me of sin, and because I speak the truth, why do you not believe me? He that is a God heareth God's word, you hear them not because you're not a God. How's that for loving the sinner, you old pious rascal? Yeah, there's a lot of harebrained stuff going around America today, you know, under the heading of dynamic tensions and personal release and personal adjustment integrated seminars that amounts to little more than just avoiding the portions of the Bible that deal with your dirty, rotten sins. Christ hated iniquity. If you don't believe it, read your Bible instead of the fairy stories you've been reading. Now the results of Christ's sinlessness were fivefold. Being sinless, he was the perfect revelation of God to mankind. Number two, being human and sinless, he guarantees us a perfect mediator. He shows that he came right down to the level of man, of being temptable and yet resisting and overcoming. That is, he lived the life we could not live. He kept the commandments we could not keep. He satisfied a God we could not satisfy, and he offered a sacrifice we could not offer, and thus becomes the one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, the only man who ever lived, whose feet are solidly feet of clay, the Son of Man, and whose head is above the clouds, far above all principality and power, in this world and the world to come, head over the church, in contact with the Godhead. Now, Buddha can get his feet in the clay, but he can't get his head out of the solar system the devil controls. And Brahma and Vishnu and Ramakrishna can get their feet in the clay, but once they pack them away in the clay, they stay buried. Thirdly, being human and sinless, he became an acceptable sacrifice on Calvary for our sins. Thus he is spoken of as a lamb, as your sacrifice, as a lamb without spot or blemish. And John said, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. Fourthly, he set before us a perfect example for us to follow in First Peter 2, verse 21 and 22, in that he was sinless. And fifthly, it points the way to a home in heaven open to us by a sinless Savior. Let us rise and praise God that Jesus came without original sin and went back to heaven sinless, where he lived a life of absolute moral perfection. And it's a great message to take the people bound by the chains of sin, lust, habit, and evil desires. They can have liberty and victory through a perfectly victorious Savior. And as Paul said it, thanks be unto God that always caused us to triumph through Jesus Christ. And again, Romans 8, we are more than conquerors to him that loved us. May God help you to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior this day and appropriate him and his power in your daily life as a Christian that you might be sanctified and pure and walk a life that's pleasing in his sight. May the Lord bless you and good day.